Welcome to another edition of Cool Stuff Ride Home Podcast. I'm Reggie Rizzo with Marcus Path, bringing you some of the most interesting stories of the day. Taking a look at today's episode, EU's ban of microplastics. We try to save the axolotls, $20,000 in scratch-offs, but no winners, we'll explain. And the very first car race in the U.S., plus this day in history. That's all coming up on Cool Stuff Ride Home. Well, you may have come across this story prior to the Thanksgiving holiday as the European Union recently enacted a law banning the use of intentionally added microplastics. Now, this isn't a term, Reggie, that I was familiar with prior to reading this story, despite the fact microplastics have been banned in the U.S. since 2015. So what are they? Let's define them for everybody. The term itself is a bit on the nose. Microplastics or microbeads, as some people call them, are tiny pieces of plastic, typically smaller than five millimeters in length, often found in health and beauty products, including soap and body wash, uh, as well as some plastic glitters for that matter. Under the terms of this new EU ban, some products have been granted a transitional period to give manufacturers a chance to develop new designs, but it's expected that this ingredient will be removed from all products within the next couple of years. So why is this relevant slash important? Well, a recent study found that unfortunately, these plastics are making their way into our water sources and being ingested by marine life. The study detected microplastics in over 1,500 different marine animal species and noted that per day, a krill-feeding blue whale may ingest 10 million pieces of microplastic, while a fish-feeding humpback whale likely ingests around 200,000 pieces of microplastic. So a significant drop-off for the fish-feeding whale, but still uh, a lot of plastic to be taking in. And if that wasn't bad enough, Here's something that's really creepy. Per the World Wildlife Foundation, the average human consumes up to five grams of microplastics per week. Now, if you're looking for something to compare that to, that is roughly as much plastic as is contained in a single credit card. Yuck. Uh, Of course, this is a relatively new phenomenon as plastic itself was only first mass produced to the general public after World War II. And then it really took off again in the 1960s and 70s, meaning we still don't have a great handle on the potential consequences of plastic ingestion. Okay, so with that information, which is not so cool as the title of this show would suggest, what are we doing with that? Well, Here's some good news. Some manufacturers are years ahead of the game when it comes to making the move away from microplastics. Per the nonprofit news outlet Reasons to be Cheerful, the cosmetics company Lush and The Body Shop are among those that have long been offering natural alternatives. They use things like ground nuts, bamboo, sea salt, and sugar. Some international companies like Beersdorf AG out of Germany have also been working on more natural solutions for years for that matter. And they continue to search for alternatives. Some recent examples include cellulose particles and shredded apricot kernels. One other source of microplastics, too, that I I should bring up here that I hadn't stopped to consider, sports fields, those with artificial surfaces. In the U.S., if you've ever stepped onto a football field comprised of field turf, you've undoubtedly seen the ground-up granules generously placed throughout the fake quote-unquote grass to help absorb impact when players are tackled well sometimes these granules are made from rubber which isn't technically a plastic but for all intents and purposes is included in this 
issue we're discussing, it's made from the same family of polymers. In the EU, soccer pitches are constructed much the same way. In Germany alone, there are more than 9,500 such fields or pitches. Now, according to the European Chemicals Agency, artificial turf surfaces release up to 16,000 tons of microplastic into the environment every year. Jürgen Bertling from the German Fraunhofer Institute for Environmental Safety and Energy Technology, that's a mouthful, says, quote, these particles can quickly be carried into the environment by wind and weather or sports shoes, end quote. Now, despite the issues from cosmetics and sports fields, one of the largest contributors of microplastics out there is simple tire abrasion. Again, said rubber being incorporated as part of this, the breakdown of the tire as it absorbs wear and tear on the road, tiny particles are then released as the tires are used and counterintuitively, the move towards electric vehicles is only going to make this problem worse. Uh, this again, per Klaus Sig of the Reasons to be Cheerful Network, electric cars are significantly heavier than combustion engines due to their batteries, which means more wear and tear on your tires. So, What's next? I know this podcast is supposed to be about cool stuff, and a lot of this just sounds depressing right now, but important for awareness purposes. Here is some good news. A startup called the Tire Collective has found a possible solution. They've developed a suction device that can be fitted directly behind the tires on the underbody of your car. The patent-pending technology uses electrostatics and airflow to attract these tiny tire particles. Together with the London logistics company Zero, the tire collected tested prototypes on London's streets for three months. What did they find? Well, according to the startup, over half of the particles that the device captured were below 0.01 millimeters in size. Those are the ones considered to be the most harmful to human health and the environment, according to the Tire Collective. Working with the designers, the startup has also developed various products made from tire particles and recycled plastic using 3D printers a vase, a speaker, a lamp, and an acoustic panel, all items that were exhibited, made from this 3D printer, exhibited at the London Design Festival at Material Matters in September of 2023. Bottom line, this is an ongoing issue, one that deserves our attention, of course, but the EU's ban on microplastics in cosmetics, coupled with the U.S.'s decision in 2015, uh, as well as some of the things we've learned about these startups who are, are trying to be proactive in finding ways to dispose or reuse these microplastics, all constitutes a, a pretty good start to addressing this problem, Reggie. I'm most interested in the using nuts, bamboo, sea salt, and sugar as a replacement for some of those plastics. I, I want to know, like, if you're doing it with credit cards, instead of cutting up your card, can you just eat it? <laughs> well, I think the point is you don't want to ingest the credit card at week's end. But right now, that sounds like where we're at. This is tough because we're so reliant on plastics these days. They're convenient. And, of course, they don't shatter the way a, a glass bottle would. Uh, although, don't get me started on drinking soda from a glass bottle compared to a plastic one because one <laughs> is significantly better than the other. That said, it's going to take time, I think, before society at large finds a way to really move away from plastic as a whole. And in the meantime, if we can find a way to reuse these things and, and certainly keep them out of our, our water and food supply, that's really the, the most important thing. Well, here's a story my son would love, mostly because it has to do with axolotls, and he's obsessed with them right now. Mexico's National Autonomous University relaunched a fundraising campaign to help save and protect the axolotls. 
If you're unfamiliar with the ever-growing popular amphibian, they look a little like a fish with feathery gills, but they are actually salamanders that never undergo the metamorphosis process. They have been used in a lot of scientific research for their ability to regenerate limbs, gills, and parts of their eyes and even brains. They're also closely related to the tiger salamander. Now, the ecologist for the National Autonomous University's campaign to help the amphibians is called Adopt Axolotl. With a minimum donation of $35, you can adopt one. Now, it's, it's you don't get to bring it home. It's a virtual adoption, uh, but they give you live updates on the one you adopted. There's also a lesser donation that you can throw out there that helps you virtually buy dinner for them. Is that at a restaurant of my choosing, Reggie? <laughs> I think so. Bring it to a nice steakhouse or something, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> According to the scientists organizing the fundraiser, over the past two decades, the main habitat for the Mexican axolotls has dropped 99.5%. Almost all 18 species of the axolotl in Mexico are critically endangered due to water pollution, a deadly amphibian fungus, and the non-native rainbow trout. In a space that scientists would normally find around 6,000 axolotls in the past, they are now only finding 36 on average. There are now less than 1,000 Mexican axolotls left in the wild, according to a recent international study. The scientists hope to start a new census for the salamanders in March, the first since 2014. They say that'll allow them to know how long the creatures have left and where to prioritize resources that they do have. Alejandro Calzada is an ecologist for Mexico's Environment Department and is currently surveying less well-known species of axolotl. He said there are not enough resources available to gather all the information they need. Quote, we lack a big monitoring of all the streams in Mexico City for a large area. It is not enough, end quote. So last year, this is the second year they've done this, uh, Adopt Axolotl. Last year, they raised about $26,000. That was used for an experimental captive breeding program and to restore habitat in the southern borough of Mexico City. That's pretty cool, Reggie. I'll be honest, I had no idea what an axolotl was until you shared this story. And am I saying that right, axolotl? Ex Exolato. That, that's how my son always says it, at least. I'm going to follow his lead. Yeah, that, that should be. <laughs> of course. <laughs> I mean, he's an expert. He is seven years old. So absolutely. Um... <laughs> Future but scientist are... right there. Yeah, they are cute little salamanders. I mean, you got to give them that. Oh, I absolutely gave them that because the second you told me about this, I Googled them and thought, yeah, that's one of the cutest animals I've ever seen. And then listening to you go through the details here the fact that they can regenerate limbs and even parts of their brain is fascinating i can see why scientists out there would have a keen interest in taking a look at, at how these little creatures function we've all dreamt of winning the lottery and retiring to a destination of our choosing i personally would opt for an island in the caribbean for a massachusetts woman this probably felt like the next best thing at least momentarily. Danielle Alexandrov of Falmouth received a heavy box from FedEx recently, delivered directly to her home. The contents, $20,000 worth of scratch-off lottery tickets. Quote, I started going through the boxes. Everything is normal until I get a box that is very heavy, Alexandrov told WCBB-TV. I open it up, and it's a box of scratch tickets, and I'm thinking, is this a joke? Until I look at the receipt and its value is $20,000 worth 
of scratch tickets, end quote. Any feelings of joy or thoughts of scratching the ticket subsided fairly quickly, however. The box was intended for Kenyon's market in East Falmouth, as indicated by the address on the box, so Alexandrov decided to return the tickets to their rightful owner. Good on her. Officials say, of course, she did the right thing as well, as the tickets would have been worthless if kept. Massachusetts Lottery spokesperson Christian Teja said, quote, these tickets, until they're activated by a retail agent, there's really no value to them. If someone tried to take one of these tickets, if it was a winning ticket, brought it to a retail location, there would be a message that would flag it and they'd be unable to cash the ticket, end quote. Too bad for Alexandrov, of course, but good on her for doing the right thing and returning the tickets. Alexandrov is not the first person in recent months to receive a mysterious package. This one's even more bizarre. Back in September, Joelle Angelhart of Chaplow, Ontario, opened an Amazon box that arrived at her home to discover over 1,000 condoms that she had never ordered. To make matters worse, Angelhart later discovered that she'd been charged $495 for the order, but after some back and forth with Amazon, which can at times be difficult, uh, she was finally refunded. At the time, she said she'd actually received an email from Amazon about a forthcoming delivery a few days before the package actually showed up, but she assumed it was a fake because she and her husband had not ordered any condoms. Uh, well, uh, I guess that's what her husband claims for the story anyway, Reggie. <laughs> but did they have to return them or did they get to keep them? I can only imagine. <laughs> you know what? I, fine. I don't know. I have no idea what, what so, they ultimately know, so, did with the box. Sometimes they let you keep the packages. So I just want to know if they kept them and what they did with them. I want you to follow up on that story. I, don't, I don't want to follow up on this story. I'm going to leave this one alone, Reggie. Next. Well, it's not today in history, but... Yet it kind of is. The very first auto race in the U.S. happened on November 28th, 1895. That was Thanksgiving Day back then. It was organized by the Chicago Times-Herald. That race, which was from Chicago to Evanston and back, was made up of six cars traveling 54 miles. The total cash prizes came out to $5,000, which, if you put into an inflation calculator, equates to about $180,000 today. At that time, the first cars that were made in the U.S. had only been around for two years. The paper at the time didn't know what to call them, so they settled on motorcycle. The top prize went to Frank Durier, who won $2,000, which would equate to about $70,000 today. It took him seven hours and 53 minutes to complete that race. The second, <laughs> he was going a, a whopping seven miles per hour. That was the top speed for the race. Were there snacks on board? Did he have a beverage with him while he took this nearly eight-hour road trip that got him to a suburb of Chicago and back? Well, I'll get to it in a second, but each car seems like they have their own little interesting story of what happened. The second-place car, a German-made Benz, driven by Oscar B. Mueller, came in an hour and a half after Duryea did. The car Duryea drove, he built with his brother Charles in 1883. It was a $70 buggy equipped with a one-cylinder engine. However, for the race, they needed to add a little more power, so they upgraded that buggy to a two-cylinder, two-stroke engine. Woo! Yeah. Showing off now. 90 contestants applied to enter the race, which was originally scheduled for November 2nd that year, but only two cars were ready, Duryea and Mueller's car. So it was postponed the day of the race, November 28th, now Thanksgiving Day. Two cars that were supposed to be in the race were prevented from entering the city by police. So that made it so there was only six cars in the race. Also included in the race were two more German-made Benz and two electrically-powered two-wheelers. 
The course was actually originally set to go to Milwaukee and back from Chicago. Uh, that would have been about 100 miles, but they shortened it due to sub-zero temperatures and bad driving conditions. The weather for that day, uh, the high was 38 degrees and the roads were muddy with snow in places as well. Can't imagine they had snow tires ready to throw on at a moment's notice either, Reg. No, and they couldn't throw it in four-wheel drive either and get up there. In fact, the two-wheelers failed to get up the first significant hill. One of the Benzes hit a course and had to leave the race. Uh, a horse? You, a horse, yes. Mueller, the second-place person, went unconscious due to exposure for a little bit of the race. This My steer- God! This this, is, I, th- I thought this sounded like the least dangerous race ever at seven miles an hour. And now you're telling me about the conditions. This is treacherous. The steering arm of Deere's car broke off and it had to be replaced by a blacksmith during the race. Uh, Naturally, with, that's what blacksmiths yeah. do. They fix steering wheels. Yeah. Well, his uh, brother, Charles, actually traveled alongside the, the car with a horse-drawn carriage. And uh, with 12 miles to go... Uh, one of the cylinders malfunctioned, and he and his brother fixed it together to finish off the race. After Duryea's win, uh, he was very excited. He said, quote, at no time were we compelled to get out and push, end quote. That was a, a, a big <laughs> triumph at the time. When you started this story, I thought this would have been the most boring event ever to potentially have attended. But given everything that happened here, I feel like it might have been one of the more entertaining events. Although you'd have to have been moving alongside these automobiles in order to take it all in. And Durier actually didn't even win for getting the fastest time. He was awarded that $2,000 prize for having carriage made best performance and average speed best pole and compact design. But a lot of the racers, like Duryea, kind of, I think, got disqualified in a way because he failed to keep to the course and he had that blacksmith repair, which was violating the race rules. Uh, Mueller, who got second place, he won the most amount of money, second place, for Wagon made best performance in road, most economy in operation. But he failed to keep to the course and he was pushed by outsiders. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. I, I want to see a transcript of the official rules. Does it explicitly state no blacksmiths and no outsiders allowed to push? It would have been a long race and probably a boring race. But you can't say not interesting. I mean, a driver became unconscious due to exposure <laughs> to the elements. Thankfully, he was topping out at seven miles per hour. Taking a look at this date in history as the world turns and the edge night. They were the final two American soap operas that had resisted going to the pre-taped broadcast. Well, they aired their last live episode on this date in 1975. As the World Turns first aired on CBS starting on April 2nd, 1956, it had a 54-year run until September 17th, 2010. It was created by Irma Phillips to be the sister show to Guiding Light. It was the first daytime drama with a 30-minute runtime. All their daytime dramas were only on for about 15 minutes at that time. Expanded to 60 minutes in 1975. Uh, It also won daytime Emmys for Outstanding Drama Series in 1987, 1991, 2001, and 2003. Edge of the Night debuted on April 2nd, 1956 on CBS, but switched networks in 1975, moving to ABC. That's the network it ended its run on when it stopped in 1984. Yeah, I absolutely remember As the World Turns, Reggie, because my mom was a big fan. You know, midday, 
right after Mr. Rogers had wrapped up, which of course was my programming at the time as a kid, it was time for my nap, and then my mom would settle in to watch As the World Turns, presumably among some of the other shows that aired at that point. But I specifically remember the opening credit scene to As the World Turns, although I was not an actual viewer myself. My mom was more of the Young and the Restless. That was her ah, show. Ah, okay. Yep, remember yeah. that one as well. I, yep. I know all the names, but I was not into watching those shows not not as a seven-year-old and i always loved and they replaced the actors so it was like one day somebody was sick and they just replaced it with a different actor for the day the role of jack is portrayed by so-and-so today i don't remember that i don't remember that but i'll have to keep that in mind if you're ever sick on this show today the role of reggie rizu will be played by That'll do it for another edition of the Cool Stuff Ride Home podcast. I got to go hop in my automobile and cruise at seven miles per hour off to the store now. The rest of you have a great day. For Reggie Rizzo, I'm Marcus Papp. We'll see you tomorrow. Watch out, horse. This thing's out of control. I can't wait. <laughs>